You're listening to Brainwaves on WRBB 104.9 FM. We're your hosts, Jake Willis and Gatsby Smith, broadcasting from Boston, Massachusetts, and we have a great broadcast for you today. On today's program of Brainwaves, I talk with Simon Perdue of Northeastern's History Department as we explore the history of labor unions within the United States. And I interview Celia Pierce, head of the game design program here at Northeastern, as we talk about the long past and future of games. Hello, and welcome to Brainwaves, the academic podcast here in Northeastern Radio. Today, I am joined by Celia Pierce, the head of the game design program here at Northeastern. Celia, thank you so much for being here with me today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So game design is a really awesome program here at Northeastern, but uh, compared to some other programs, it's still relatively new. How have you seen the game design program grow in the last couple of years at Northeastern? Well, when I first got here, the bulk of the program was focused on students who were interested in computer science. And so we have a pretty large cohort now of the BS, Bachelor of Science in Computer Science and Game Development. But we're slowly building um, our cohort of uh, game design, BFAs, and also game uh, people who want to do visual arts for games. So that group, that contingent is growing. Um, the BFA program was just launched two years ago, so we're slowly bringing more students in with that uh, orientation. And so you're able to find a balance between the more technically uh, focused students and the more creative side. Yes, and actually many of our uh, computer science students are also quite creative. Mm-hmm. Game design is by by its nature a renaissance kind of discipline. It attracts people that are both creative and technical usually, usually somewhere along a spectrum. So for instance, I'm, I've been designing games since 1983, but I've wow. never programmed any code in my life. But I know how to speak to programmers and communicate with them. And game design is also a very collaborative field. So what we try to do is put the computer science students together with the game design students. And also all of the computer science students are required to take design classes. So in some game programming programs that I've been associated with or seen, they don't really teach the programmers design, but we think it's really important, even if you're just going to code for your career choice, um, that you understand the principles of design and also that you know how to work with designers. So um, some of the key starting courses and our and our capstones, at most of our courses, in fact, are occupied by students from both CAMD, um, College of Art, Media and Design, and CCIS, Computer Science. Great. And going to what you were saying about your starting classes, I think when many people hear game design, especially in 2018, they're thinking video games and uh, uh, games associated with technology in general. But a lot of the uh, starting classes for games are focused on looking back at traditional games with whether it's pen or papers or dies, but something that you could have played hundreds of years ago. Do you still think that's important for students to learn in 2018? Absolutely. I think it's really important for any student who's working in a field, particularly a medium, to understand the history and traditions and conventions of their medium. For instance, a lot of my students don't know when they first come here that the typical massively multiplayer online game is directly based on the conventions of Dungeons & Dragons from the 70s. The, The math is the same, essentially. Um, So I want them to understand, just as you would if you were a film student, you would see silent films. 
Um, I want them to understand where their medium comes from. I also want them to understand that games go way back, way before computers. Um, some people think they're the oldest medium of human communication. And if we look past the computer, we can find a lot of other sources of inspiration for game design. So for instance, I actually teach a class about 20th century avant-garde art movements. And what I do in that class is I introduce students to fine artists um, from movements such as Dada and Fluxus who were interested in games and play as part of their art practice. And so that means my students now can reach beyond just computer games um, for their inspiration. And many of the students who come here to study computer games, they play a lot of games. Um, they often play a lot of digital games. Sometimes they play a lot of board games. Board games are having a big renaissance right now, which I'm mm -hmm. really happy about. Mm -hmm. um, we also are focusing on innovation. Our program, uh, the BFA specifically, was designed to acknowledge the fact that half of game developers now, and I actually did some research about this a couple of years ago, right before I came to Northeastern, actually. Mm -hmm. I worked on a big survey um, of the game industry sponsored by this association, and we found that almost half of the of the developers that took the survey said they were indie. And so I was just coming here and we were starting the BFA and I said, listen, this is a different ball game than it was when I started in the, in the late 90s because in those days, your job was probably going to be at Electronic Arts or Ubisoft or some big studio. And now there's a 50-50 chance you're going to end up either at your own place or working for a small studio. Boston is full of indie studios. Mm -hmm. We've been getting a lot of our students to do co-ops with them now so they can kind of see what that alternative career path looks like. They have to take some courses in business development so that they can understand if they need to start their own business, they'll be able to. We have had a few students do Kickstarters, so they'll take a game project from a class, and for their co-op, they'll do a Kickstarter and uh, you know get some funding to get it made. So it's very entrepreneurial. It's not just about going to work as a you know uh, code monkey, as they call it, or, <laughs> or an art monkey in a big studio, but teaching them to be proactive, really, and also to come up with game ideas that are unique and different from what they're used to playing. Yeah, and so I think when a lot of game design students come in, they kind of have an idea of what they want to be. Maybe they want to be the person who creates the levels or draws the art or comes up with the rules, maybe a more specific role. So how does you elaborate? You talked about this a little bit. How does the game design program make them a bit more of a well-rounded game designer? Because the industry can be really brutal sometimes or all the time almost. And so... How, how do you prepare uh, an incoming freshman to eventually graduate and m carve out a piece for themselves? We, um, enc we encourage students to take specific roles on project, but we don't necessarily encourage them to silo themselves. Mm -hmm. So I have a technique I actually use for team building, which is a game that I designed. And, and the game, it's a, um, a trading card game where they make a superhero card for themselves. And they have different stats, and the stats are things like programming, art, game design, project management, and they have different numbers. And so when they try to form a team, the goal of the game is to have a balanced team. And that means that if I'm a coder, if I have, like, say, a six in or a, a five or a four in coding and a five in art, then I can do both of those things on the team. So it's putting together a, a constellation, if you will, of mm -hmm. skills rather than just saying, I'm just a programmer and I'm just an artist. I was working with some students right before I came here on a project, um, and one of the people in the group is a really good artist, and while we were sitting there, she was drawing the logo, and here's the light, came up with a logo, what do you guys think? And 
she's a computer science student, but she's a really good artist too. So she has, she's kind of a double threat in a way. Um, now, if she was to go work at a big studio, they'd probably be just keep her in the programming. But if I hook her up with an indie studio, she could very well end up doing both of those things for them. If she has her own studio as well, she could end up doing both of them. So I want them to realize that they can have multiple skills and deploy them in different ways depending on the, the situation. Awesome. And you also mentioned that there's some games course classes that might necessarily have to focus heavily on games, like um, the business for games class and other courses like that. Do you think there are things that uh, elements of those and lessons that non-game students can take away from those classes, like a business student who might not be thinking of making games in the future can go into that business for games class and still come away with something that he'll be able to use in a non-games related business? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it specifically focuses on the game industry, but there's also some principles that uh, they would pick up from taking that class that could be applicable in other fields. Mm -hmm. We actually get a few students coming from other majors who take some of our classes that are available as electives, and we've even had some converts who um, <laughs> we actually have a pretty high percentage of our students actually started out in a different major and then changed after taking one of our classes, so that's kind of cool. But it's, it's interesting to see who shows up in those classes. Like last semester, I was teaching a class called Designing Imaginary Worlds, and I think I had three engineering students in this class. Huh. And it was really great because their skills really came into play when they were doing things like, we're designing an imaginary city and we need to come up with bridges and roads. Or Perfect. sometimes if they're doing some science fiction thing and they need to do some hypothetical technology, somebody like that could be super super useful on a team. And I think it's fun for them because it's just a different way to stretch their mental muscles than they normally have in an engineering class. Where, what opportunities do you see in games going forward when it comes to virtual reality and like the new experiences people can get in VR? So before we get into VR, I want to just touch on the AR question mm -hmm. briefly. Um, first of all, I think augmented reality is a very interesting crossover because um, at least in the case of Pokemon Go, you can do it on your phone. So when I first started working in games, which was in the 80s, um, we didn't even have mobile phones. I'm sure you can't imagine that. <laughs> um, and I actually started designing virtual reality in the 90s. So I made my first virtual reality game in 1993. Right. And I was using a um, military flight simulator to make an underwater adventure for theme parks. And when, you, uh, when we were done, you could buy this 24-player game for $3 million. I could program that entire game now on my laptop. So um, what's really changed, and, and I'm, I'm part of this little kind of um, special interest group in the College of Arts, Media, and Design, specifically about this question about the future of VR. And people keep asking me, well, what's different? Well, one of the things that's different is that we have... Um, much more graphics capabilities on our desktops because of the video game industry. So because people play games on their PCs, your PC can now run virtual reality, which wouldn't have been the case 20 years ago or even 10 years ago. Um, I've actually happened to have worked very closely with Oculus Rift because um, their company sponsored a festival that I co-founded called IndieCade. And they were very engaged very early on with the indie game community because they realized that they were not going to sell their hardware unless there was content. And this is, to me, the one takeaway I will tell you from any kind of tech craze. 
Um, and I'm, I refer to the current one as the VR feeding frenzy. <laughs> <laughs> and basically what, I'm, what I keep telling people is nothing has changed about this. It's the content, stupid. This was our slogan in the 90s, and it's still our slogan. If there's nothing interesting for me to do with this technology, nobody is going to care. So that's where it's incumbent on people from CAMD, arts, media, and design, communication, journalism, and departments that are in the business of creating content to think about what can people do with this technology that's different from what they can do on different platforms. I have seen one too many... 3D movie trailers. I'm doing scare <laughs> quotes with my hands right now on a radio show. Um, why? Why am I seeing a 3D rendition of a trailer for a movie? That is ridiculous. Um, I have also seen one of the most powerful digital experiences of my life in the form of a, an immersive virtual reality experience documenting a beating at the border of an undocumented work uh, immigrant. Mm -hmm. So... If we can find what are the unique stories that we can only tell with this medium, that's what I'm interested in. Like, how can we use VR in a way where I can't do this with a TV or a cell phone or whatnot? The other thing that's interesting to me is now these things are starting to converge. So I was just showing my colleagues last week um, uh, a little 3D animation that you can watch on your cell phone using a $10 headset that I bought on Amazon. So you just take your phone... You put the headset on, you drop your phone in, and there's already an accelerometer in your phone, so when you turn your head, mm -hmm. it knows where your head is. You don't have to do, everyone's like, well, what, do I have to download something? Nope, just flip it over and put it in the headset. So that's something even my dad, who's 82 years old, could figure out. <laughs> and so I think that as these things become more accessible, we have the, the graphics engines in our pockets and on our desktops, I think there's going to be a little bit of a bar with most people aren't going to necessarily want to buy a $300 headset, but many people will buy a $10 plastic thing that they can wear on their head with their phone in it. Right. And so two months ago at Northeastern hosted the 2018 Global, Global Game, Game Jam. Jam. Yeah. Um, and I was there for that <laughs> oh, in the great. one last year. Okay. And uh, I, unfortunately, I wasn't able to participate this year, but I was able to uh, come in and see how my friends were doing. Oh, nice. What does, um, uh, for those who don't know, the Global Game Jam is basically you lock yourself in a room with, <laughs> with a bunch of people for 48 hours, and you have a, and during that time, you have to come up and design and craft the best game that you possibly can. So... Um, when I did it last year, I had no idea how to make a game at all, but I was still able to um, contribute and help my team along to a game that I felt very proud of in the end. What are some takeaways that people can take from the Global Game Jam if they're like me, someone who has no experience, or even someone who maybe has made a thousand AAA games before? I think the first takeaway is it's fun. <laughs> and you kind of just said it yourself. Doing a game jam is a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit crazy. Like, you don't get a lot of sleep. You don't have to be awake the whole time, but you can if you want. <laughs> and But what it is that's really nice is it gives you the chance to sort of get your hands dirty or, or dip your toe in the water and see what it's like. And so a lot of times I'll meet people and they'll go, oh, I really want to make a game, but I've never made a game before. What should I do? And I always just tell them, go to a game jam, see if you like it. You're just giving up three days of your life. <laughs> you get to collaborate and network with people. 
Um, I've also met people, for instance, who are animators who want to get into games or, or move, you know, a skill set that they have. There have been faculty members from here that are interested in learning about games who have shown up at these things, um, participated with students. Um, it's just a really nice, quick way to learn about game design because it's collaborative. You don't have to have all the skills. There's a common... Uh, a common misapprehension that you have to know how to code to make games it's completely false in fact what i've seen is if if all you know how to do is code you just make the same games you've already played mm -hmm. so a mix of people starts creating new ideas so one of the faculty members who came to the game jam two years ago they ended up making this hilarious game that was a therapy simulator where you were the therapist of a gay superhero couple and you had to help them solve their problems. Now, I don't think that those students would have come up with that idea on their own without this faculty member present in their team. Um, so new ideas can come up out of putting new combinations of people together and bringing new voices to the table that might not have normally been in a setting with a game development project. So I find it really fun to see what people come up with. Um, it was really great for um, our grad students. They came and uh, the master's students, they all got together and made a game. And it was really great for them because they've been working really hard and writing papers and they just got to hang out together and do something really creative and really fun. And they ended up making one of the best games that was shown in this year's, uh, in this year's jam. So it can also just be a way to kind of let off steam, let your creative juices go, network, meet people. There's usually some food, free food involved. Um, I think we had a very low price ticket for ours, maybe even free for students from Northeastern. Students also come from other schools. So we also get, um, usually we get a, a few kids from, uh, what is the school across the way, the engineering school? Um, Oh, you know the one I'm talking about. Yeah, right? I'm, yeah so I feel bad that I don't know. Some kids from right there now. come over and then begins we, with the W. And then we also have um, a bunch of kids come from Berkeley College of Music and work with our students on game projects. So it's really a nice interdisciplinary mix and it's a lot of fun. And that ultimately goes back to what you talked about about games and help other, other people communicate and network and help bring yeah. people together. Yeah, I mean, it's great. It's a great place to learn about collaboration, even if you're not going to do game design. Um, the other thing I should mention is that, uh, so the Global Game uh, Jam was actually founded by a former uh, faculty member here who actually helped start the, she was the person that initiated the BFA that I'm now running. Mm -hmm. And um, many of the games from the Global Game Jam, which we sh you should know takes place all over the world. I think it's in 700 locations worldwide now. All across the globe, there are people doing this all at the same time. And many of these games end up in game, in, in game festivals like my festival Indicate or Boston Fig, which takes place here every fall, um, as well as getting published. So there's actually quite a few games. So if you go do a game jam, there's also a chance you might make a game that's going to get some traction, get published, get attention, and whatnot. It happens. You know, I've, I've known a few people that were like sort of surprised, like, oh, my game jam game, <laughs> everybody really likes it, and it's become a thing, you know, so... Yeah, it's it's a very nice way to kind of get get your foot in the door. All right, so I have one last question for today. What is your favorite game? I cannot answer that question. Okay, uh, because well, it's because I play a lot of games, and because I'm involved in IndieCade, I've played dozens and dozens and dozens of indie games. I much prefer indie games to mainstream games. 
Um, okay. What's the what's one of the better games you've played in the so last couple game, of months? A game that stands out in my mind overall of my IndieK games is actually a multiplayer. It's a massively multiplayer local multiplayer game, if that makes any sense. Okay. For upwards of 100 plus people. And um, it's played with laser pointers on a screen. And so oh, wow. the creators of this game, they created this environment where you can they can um, read the red laser pointer dots on the screen, and 200 people are supposed to basically maneuver a spaceship in this uh, space-themed wow. game. And it's this transcendent experience, because there you are. It's like the hive mind, right? <laughs> there you are with 200 mostly strangers, and you're actually getting being able to get something accomplished. And it was kind of this magical moment where I thought, wow, that's really, I didn't know that was possible. And I've played a lot of other games like that where they create a kind of, um, you have a transformative experience from playing them. And that was probably one that stood out to me the strongest. Um, there are others that I really like that people could get. That, that game, by the way, is called Renga. And it's, Renga. it's hard to play because it's event-based. right. A couple of uh, games I've looked at recently that I really liked. Um, there's a game called Framed on the iPad, which I love, which is kind of an interactive comic book where you have to put the panels in a sequence. Oh, interesting. There's another game called um, Monument Valley, which was yep. getting a lot of attention, a really cool kind of M.C. Escher puzzle game. Very fun. And um, a really beautiful game that I love that's starting to get a lot of attention is a game called That Dragon Cancer. Which yes. is this very intense sort of gut wrenching game? We mm -hmm. showed it at Indiecade, um, the first prototype of it actually many years ago, and then uh, the developers got um, kickstarted it and, and ended up getting a publishing publishing the game. And it's one of those cases where you know people say, well, it, it won't be a real medium until it can make you cry. And I challenge anyone to play that Dragon Cancer and not cry. Mm -hmm. It's one of the most emotionally compelling experiences I've had in any medium. So I think that um, we're kind of at this point now where games are able to do a lot more sophisticated things than they used to be able to. We're, we're well past Pac-Man and Pong at this point. Definitely. Um, and I think, I think in a lot of ways... I mean, obviously, I'm biased, but I think <laughs> I think video games can ultimately trans, not just video games, any kind of games can can transcend um, other media. I'm primarily right now interested in non-digital games. So the two games uh, that I mentioned, I'm working on this hybrid kind of augmented reality game. I also uh, created a game, also with a faculty member and a couple of students here, that is an electronic quilt. I don't know if I mentioned this to you in the email, but it's um it's called EB. And it's a game that uses fabric, conductive fabric, mm -hmm. and the goal of the game is to make circuits. So it's oh, a big quilt cool. made out of made out of beautiful, different multicolored cloth, and it has channels of conductive fabric and conductive Velcro, and you have to make a path from the central battery uh, island around the board through these little islands that have lights on them, and then back to the battery. And whenever you close a circuit the lights on these islands light up. And so I'm, I'm now moving into, into a direction where I'm working with um, some theater people as well as game designers on live action role playing, immersive theater kinds of experiences that really don't even have any tech, but that are really just about putting people into the middle of an interesting narrative, but also allowing them to participate in the same way that they would in a video game. 
It all sounds amazing. Thank you so much for coming in. Celia Pierce, everybody. Is there anything in the game design program or any events coming up that you would like to give a shout out to? Actually, I'm glad you mentioned that. On April 23rd, we're going to be having the Northeastern Game Showcase in the student Curry Student Center Ballroom from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. And we'll be showcasing games from the games program, the game dev club, and all across the campus. So it's a really fun event, and I hope people can make it. That was Jake Willis talking with Celia Pierce about the game design program here at Northeastern. Up next, Gatsby Smith interviews Simon Perdue of Northeastern's History Department on the influence of labor unions in United States history. Hi, this is Gatsby Smith from Brainwaves on 104.9 WRBB, and I'm joined today by Simon Perdue of Northeastern University a specialist in the studies of industrial and labor history, pursuing his Ph.D. here at Northeastern. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Cosby. It's good to be here. Um, so before we begin, uh, just give us a little rundown about why you're so interested in industry and labor and the history you're surrounding in the United States specifically. Um, well, it's it's always been something that I'm interested in. My, my studies in kind of labor history go back to when I was at the BA level, uh, studying at UCD in Dublin. Um, I started working on kind of gender and self-help organizations, which was was fascinating work. And, and that led me into um, more like occupational health studies at, at the master's level, um, which I, I find really, really interesting. I came at it from a historical and an activist point of view. Um, and, you know, I, my, my master's dissertation kind of went into the many kind of uh, perils faced by industrial workers in Belfast in the uh, 19th, early, late 19th and early 20th century. Um, and that, from then on, uh, I kind of got interested in migration and labor, uh, gender and labor as well. Um, and I took my studies across the Atlantic to, to the United States. So that's, that's why I'm here now. Um, and, and it's been something I've been working on now for, for two years. Um, I'm moving into issues of race and labor now in my work as well, which I'm finding really, really fascinating. Um, and hopefully, I'm only in the second year of my PhD, but hopefully the dissertation will be uh, will be a fun project to be involved in. Awesome. Excited to see how happy you are just to be here. And I'm <laughs> yeah. glad that we have your expertise with us on the show. Thank you. So I'm pretty sure every single American kid in high school learned about labor unions just very briefly from like the Gilded Age, from like the 1890s to the 1900s. But I don't think that a lot of us really learn or know about labor unions like post-revolutionary period. Mm -hmm. And so can you just give us, an, like, just a brief run-up to the establishment of labor unions in the 1840s? Like, what was labor like before the establishment of labor unions? Uh, well, labor, uh, organized labor did exist going back, I think, as far as 1642. The first organized strike was um, in Maine, uh, a fisherman's strike. There were other strikes in New York um, and across the U.S., to be honest. Um, the These unions tended to be quite small. Um, they weren't official organizations, but the, the use of... Uh, the tactics we see used by labor unions today um, has been a common occurrence right through U.S. history, right back to the revolutionary period. Um, so the idea of collective action is, is almost an ancient idea. Uh, it, it goes back as far as humans have been working, to be honest. Um, but yeah, I mean, like in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, that's when it really comes to the fore. Um, migration industrialization um, greatly changed the workforce and the workplace here in the U.S., um, and we start to see workers start to organize a lot more um, efficiently, a lot more regularly. Um, the artisanal workers, uh, and that was that was quite a big sector. 
um, prior to the sort of mid 19th century that we were going to be talking so about. So this is still like more of like that apprenticeship kind of system yes. that existed at the time. Exactly. Like they had guilds and such. Yeah, it's, it's very specialized. It is artisanal. Um, and it was this industrialization they felt threatened by, essentially. Um, and they felt that their role in the economy and in society was under threat um, by this sort of new mechanized form of production. Um, and that meant that there was more impetus to organize and to protect their own interests. So we, so we start to see those guilds, um, this sort of knights' guilds, uh, beginning to emerge in the early 19th century, uh, late 18th century as well, so. in that sort of post-revolutionary period. So as you brought up, as like organized labor seemed to start within the Northeast, mm-hmm. we come into the, like, the landmark case of Commonwealth versus Hunt, which yeah. happened right here in Boston, Massachusetts. Yeah, exactly. So can you just give us a rundown of the case and why it was so important in American history? Well, basically, it was 1842, I believe, yeah. um, and Hunt versus Commonwealth. Uh, it was a landmark case in that it basically uh, set the ground for, uh, essentially, it's, it's an area slightly rough on that 18, you know, <laughs> mid 19th yeah. century. Uh, but I, I believe it set the groundwork for uh, a long history of the state versus unions. Um, I, I believe so. Hunt versus Commonwealth is something I'm not particularly au fait with. <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I know that it was 1842. Um, and basically, employers reacted um, to these union that were beginning, beginning to be set up. Um, and union members were convicted on conspiracy charges in many cases, um, which is quite interesting. It's conspiracy uh, to work against employers, conspiracy to work against the state, um, which is a, a trend that we see continuing right into the Red Scare in the 1950s. Um, so this idea of organized labor as an organized threat against society, and, and that comes up in Hunt versus Commonwealth. Um, and then from, from Hunt versus Commonwealth on, it became, uh, you know, th- it began to, Build a lot more traction. 1866, the first National Labor Union was formed. Um, it was dissolved, I think, maybe 10 years after. Um, now, if I'm right, I believe that is the National Labor Union? Yes, the NLU. Yeah. yeah. Um, they were they were the first um, kind of real organization that tried to bring together these small splinter groups of artisanal unions um, and to band together with industrial workers as well. Um, now, as I say, that did not last very long. Yeah. It lasted about 10 years. Uh, but that was soon followed by sort of an upsurge in, in union organizing, particularly the Knights of Labor were one of the big, big unions at that mm. point. Um, so this is when you really start to see it pick up a lot of traction in that sort of mid-century period. So in this mid-century period, I'm, I've, what I've been reading is that mostly labor unions are more of a regional mm-hmm. type of things, like where they not really represent the, like the whole entire United States. Yeah. And I think what I was reading is that the Knights of Labor were truly revolutionary as they were kind of the first uniter on like, an entire nation scale. Completely. So, like, can you, like, go more in depth of just, like, how did the Knights of Labor achieve something that seems like no other labor union, like, could achieve for the past 20 years? Well, it's interesting. The Knights of Labor, I think, uh, they were they were founded in 1869. Um, and so re- around the same time. Around the same time. They reached their peak in the 1880s. Um, so that's when sort of the mid-1880s, that sort of national picture that we see emerging, um, that, that's when we really think of the Knights of Labor. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way they managed to do that was, was through a variety of different ways. First of all, they encompassed uh, a wide range of um, basically professions uh, from the artisans right the way through to the industrial workers. Uh, they appealed to a much larger, larger audience. Um, crucially as well, at, the, at this time in American history, there was still that fear of radical politics, particularly anarchism. Uh, we see the Haymarket Affair in the 1880s. Um, the Knights of Labor 
did tend to stay away. It rejected the idea of socialism and rejected the idea of anarchism. Um, and it embraced a more Republican, free labor, uh, Republican in the traditional sense, free labor um, ethos, which appealed to a much broader audience. Um, and it allowed them to pick up all that traction and allowed them to really uh, build into, as I said, the 1880s when they kind of reached their peak. Um, I think as well, one of the most important things to, to bear in mind is that um, they were a sort of umbrella organization that represented people from unions across the country. So you could be a member of a artisanal union and also a member of the Knights of Labor, mm-hmm. um, which meant that they were a lot more uh, appealing. Um, so there was, that, there was that balance between the sort of localized uh, New England-based in many cases or New York-based um, in the cities, these sort of more specialized unions, and then the Knights of Labor, which which covered the entire nation. So... What you brought up just briefly there is that, like, there was still this kind of, like, push away of, like, the ideas of socialism within the 1880s. And -hmm. I just want to wonder, did the revolutions of Europe have a big influence on, like, the projection and, like, just the the facade that labor unions put on within the United States during this period? Oh, definitely. Yeah, because the, the sort of revolutionary spirit that was ongoing in Europe at this time had created a worldwide fear of communism um, with, you know, just the amount of suspicion that people had, particularly if migration, anarchy. Uh, we look at the Haymarket Affair in, I believe it's 1886. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, that was, it was German migrants um, were involved in a plot to uh, bomb the Haymarket Square. Um, the Knights of Labour got kind of tied up in that. They weren't responsible for it, but they... They got tied up in that, and and that eventually led to their demise. Um, but yeah, that that fear of radical politics was very present. It was very much there right throughout this sort of this period, and that is why the Knights of Labour and other organisations kind of distanced themselves from that sort of the, the socialist, communist, or anarchist ideas uh, that many more radical uh, unionists held. So as we enter like the Gilded Age of the eighteen eighties, mm-hmm. and like with the fall of the Knights of Labour. I think we enter into like the prime of still considered today one of the greatest American unions, which is the AFL, mm-hmm. and they still exist today in cooperation with the CLO, I believe. Yes. Yeah. So, can you just give us a brief history on the AFL during this time period and how it like it came to power? Yeah. Yeah. So the AFL really they kind of started coming, I think, into play in the early 1880s. Um, it was another conglomeration of a variety of unions. Um, they kind of piggybacked off the demise of the Knights of Labor. So, as I said, with the Haymarket bombing, the Knights of Labor saw a real a slide off in terms of their membership and their support. Uh, the AFL spoke of a very different ethos. They were slightly more radical. Um, they tried to avoid um, the sort of the Republican and free labor ideas that um, that the Knights of Labor embraced uh, and went for a more sort of more like what we think of when we think of unions today. Um, and so the I think it was the American uh, Labor Foundation. Is that right? Or American Labor Federation. Mm-hmm. Sorry, uh, American Federation of Labor, uh, which has been one of the most important. Like we follow them through until about 1912. Um, we start to see them getting involved in politics and they became such an influential uh, figure in American politics. They've supported Democratic candidates um, from 1912 on all but two occasions. Um, and yeah, you know, that they've become, the, you know, later into the Second World War, um, and, or rather into the uh, Great Depression era, we see the CIO coming um, into play as well. There was a little bit of competition between the CIO and the uh, uh, ALF or AFL. Um, and uh, basically then the two combined, and in the post-war period, we see them at their zenith. 
So. so you brought up briefly there how, like, the, the labor unions have seemed to be attributed to the Democratic Party. Yes. And I was just wanted to go in-depth more of when these labor unions first started coming up, what drew them so close to the Democratic mm-hmm. Party? Like, how did the Democratic Party seem to completely bring them within, within their fold within only yeah. a couple of years of their existence? Well, th- there's a few reasons for that. Um, one of the major ones was that, as, as I mentioned, the uh, the Knights of Labor were kind of aligned with the, the Republican Party at this time. They, they had these Republican ideals. Uh, but we saw the Republican Party start to align itself more with employers mm-hmm. uh, and employers' uh, organizations, uh, the National Union of, uh, I think it was manufacturers, kind of linked up with the Republican Party and created this sort of sense of suspicion. You saw the, the unions start to think, well, you know, if, if they're kind of tying up with the people that we're fighting against, exactly. can we, can you we have really... Like- because you have such like uh, nominations as like Leland Stanford as governor of California as a Republican ticket. Exactly. You have the entire Rockefeller family r- running as Republicans exactly. in New York. Those, so I'm guessing that kind of brought this weird kind of dissatisfaction. And completely, there's that kind of idea of uh, you know these are the sort of the monopoly, especially as we're moving into the progressive era, this fear of monopolies. And it's those families that were monopolizing business in in the cities of America that were holding a lot of influence within the Republican Party. So that's why at this early stage uh, we see the unions start to embrace the Democrat Party uh, from its earliest kind of um, from these early days. Um, it really that link came to the fore in sort of the Great Depression, New Deal era with FDR. Um, as I said, since 1912, uh, a- um, AFL had basically supported Democrat candidates. Um, the first time they didn't was in 1924, I believe. Um, but when it came to 1933 and uh, FDR, they were major supporters of FDR. They helped get him elected, and he paid them back in return <laughs> with, yeah. uh, you know, with um, with legislation which basically recognized um, unions uh, and people's ability to unionize uh, and to collectively bargain against their employers. And it prevented discrimination and prevented uh, reaction by the employers. Now that was deemed unconstitutional, rather. Mm-hmm. Um, but but no that that link with the Democrat Party goes way 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 back. way back. yeah. So we enter more of like the post World War One arena of politics in the United States, and here mm-hmm. you have type, which you would think that like entering the kind of like xenolith and like the mm-hmm. the prime era of labor unions with the United States, you still have these major conflicts between corporations. Oh, yeah with like the Battle of Blair Mountain in West yeah. Virginia and like if you could just give our viewers just a quick kind of like rundown of that because w- I think it's one of the most fascinating things in the United States history. It is fascinating and it, there, there was a few occasions that kind of led up to this you know you've got the Pullman real strikes and um, and, and the fields Marshall Fields in Chicago basically a pattern of violently putting down unions had begun in this kind of early 20th century period and that really reached its peak with the Blair Mountain um, issue Essentially, uh, it was in West Virginia. Um, st- miners went on strike. I think it be- I believe it started when um, a local police officer broke into a house um, and forcibly evicted uh, a woman and a child from a, a house with no warrant. Uh, miners who were already kind of beginning to move towards striking for their own reasons, their, their working conditions were absolutely horrendous. Uh, the pay was absolutely terrible as well. Um, and living conditions, because they all lived you know, at the mine. Um, and this is like the same era as like the company store and all that where exactly. they're not even getting paid in American currency, they're getting paid within the company's currency. Exactly. Like so it, it was, it, it's the definition of monopoly and people were being treated essentially as, as sort of human capital um, and they, they were seen as part of that machine um, that was 
was driving the country's economy. And, you know, admittedly, the country's economy was booming, but, booming at, but at a major human cost. Uh, and when people look back at Blair Mountain, um, they, they say that was one of the major reasons for it, um, was just how badly, how bad the conditions were for the miners. But what happened was that I think somewhere in the region of 13,000 miners um, struck. They were armed. Um, they picked up arms and they fought against 1,300. Uh, they were company men, uh, essentially. Mm, like Pinkerton agents, Pink- right? If ex- exactly. If I remember the, the correctly. Pinkler, Pinkerton company men. Um, there were major casualties on both sides. The, the battle lasted, I think, two months, uh, yeah, know, right through into September. It was, it was crazy. They brought in the army. Um, and actually, there were bombing campaigns to try and subdue the fighting because it was just, it was absolute chaos. Um, eventually, when the army were brought in, they were able to kind of stop the fighting. Initially, people saw this as a major loss for the union, uh, the organized labor movement. Um, but as time went on, it had brought more uh, awareness to the, to the organized labor. And a lot of people, particularly in that sort of um, Great Depression era, were using the narrative of Blair Mountain to kind of advance their own cause. It's it's us against the companies who hold us in such you know low esteem that they will you know shoot us or they will you know put us down violently, um, which as I said was you know a theme that was really starting to emerge in this period, mm. uh, and that's why there was that's why the legislation that FDR brought in was so important because that prevented um, armed resistance to to unions and. Um, and so on. So, no, I mean, Blair, Blair Mountain was one of those things that was just absolutely insane. Mm. <laughs> it, um, I, you know, 1921, it was the largest labor uprising in, in U.S. history. And uh, as I said, it was, it was one of the largest, I think, since the Civil War, the largest military action on U.S. soil. Which and is, it's pretty crazy to think because, you know, here in the United States, you really don't learn about this kind of stuff. No, that's it. And I, I think there there is a, a pattern of kind of glossing over it. Um, we do hear about the rail strikes, you know, the, the Pullman strike when, when that was sort of violently suppressed. Uh, Haymarket is one of those things that is, you know, it comes up time and time again. Um, I think for, for very different reasons, it, you know, it, it, it's a really contested story. Um, but, but the Battle of Blair Mountain is one I think that's been you know, forgotten, um, which is a shame, really, because it's it's such an interesting part of American history. Yeah, I don't think a lot of, like, Americans realize that this this kind of, like, armed, like, this armed conflict between these two groups, like, lasted into the 1920s and even the 30s. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it, that's only less than 100 years ago in I know, American which, history. Which is kind of nuts, really. Yeah, <laughs> you, when you really think about it. When you think of that happening today, uh, if that happened on the streets of, you know, an industrialized city in the U.S. today, it would be... World news. Absolutely world news. It would be incredible. So it is a shame that that's been forgotten, and I think that that era needs to be revisited. I mean, we still have our own issues when it comes to labor unions and, and current responses to them, but um, to really, you need to put those in the context of that violent suppression that was going on in the 1920s. Yeah. So as corporations kind of like we enter the Great Depression and Mm -hmm. American public opinion is that corporations have failed like the American public. And now we enter the New Deal coalition. Mm -hmm. And can you just describe how progressive was the New Deal coalition in bringing like American unions into the legislation? Oh, it was it was a major shift change. Um, So, as I said, um, the AFL had been crucial in kind of getting FDR into the White House. Um, Exactly uh, how, like, just on the campaign trail, they, they, they organized, like, in, voting. Incredibly supportive financially um, and in terms of, on the, you know, that groundwork as well. Um, and they had basically mobilized. So at this point, you know, he, I, 
large, large percentage of the population um, was unionized. Um, and they essentially told all of their unionized employees to vote for FDR. And that, that was a major, major uh, boon for FDR and essentially pushed him over the line, got him into the White House. But he passed uh, within, I think, two months of um, his inauguration, passed the National Industrial Recovery Act in June 33, um, which basically give unions or give workers for the first time a legal uh, recognized right, an explicit right to organize um, into unions. Um, it basically, as I said, prohibited uh, companies, prohibited employers from suppressing these organizations violently or otherwise. Um, and it gave them a right to strike, um, a legally recognized right to strike. Now, this was deemed unconstitutional two years later by the U.S. Supreme Court. But the Wagner Act um, kind of came in um, shortly after that and, you know, kind of, you know, it, it was it was a lot less than the N NIRA. Mm. But um, it's it still held that kind of legal protection for unions, that legal recognition for unions. Um, and that's when we start to see, um, because of the the issues that workers had experienced during the Great Depression, obviously, um, the idea that collective action was was so important was was really really powerful in the 1930s. Okay, so yeah, as you mentioned <laughs> in World War II, is that I'm guessing labor unions started to bring women into their fold as yeah. women start again. Because I'm guessing mm -hmm. during World War One, even though women took on a major por like portion mm -hmm. of the industrial movement, they still didn't have this kind of legal rights within like labor unions to have major say That's in their conditions. Right. So it, did World War Two bring a major shift in bringing women into the, the like the movement of labor? It did. It did. So I mean, w women had been present in the labor movement for quite some time in the 1920s. Um, the sort of presence of women in the sort of uh, textile industries. Um, they they had their own unions. There were some sort of unions that had both men and women as members. Uh, but in the Second World War, we saw women really move into the heavy industries. Um, obviously, with so many men going off to fight, uh, the gaps were left um, in in the industries, um, particularly in terms of armaments, armaments. Sorry, and um, sort of the creation of that, that war economy. Um, so women started to organize a lot more, um, started to join the unions, and this actually created a conflict when men came back in 1945. Um, we start to see a wave of strikes in the immediate post-war era because so many men don't have jobs to go back to, so many women who are being told to leave their jobs don't want to, for very obvious reasons. Um, and as the war economy starts to kind of like slow down and even collapse in some places, um, we see certain major tensions beginning to arise there. One of the most important things that came out of the, the sort of New Deal era, and this is something that Elizabeth Cohen talks about, she's over at Harvard, she's an absolutely fantastic historian, um, in making a New Deal, is that the Great Depression and into the New Deal era, we had seen a sort of creation of a unified workers' identity, where before there had been one of sort of mixed identities based on ethnic divisions, based on gender divisions, um, and... Essentially, you know, prior to the New Deal, um, different ethnic groups had been used to break strikes and it created these, this ethnic conflict that had been fueled by employers and manufacturers. So the New Deal had brought together this united identity idea. Then in the Second World War and after the Second World War, we start to see this dissipate again. So we start to see a, you know, a division start to occur. And, you know, when, like women in unions becomes a very contentious issue for a few years. Um, but... Really, we don't go backwards. It just it, It's a bit of unease and a bit of uh, a period of uh, an unsettled period. But from then on, 
uh, women take an increasingly prominent role um, in the, the labor movement. Yeah, I think something that actually kind of like as you describes what you just described to us is that mm-hmm. the film Salt of the Earth. I'm pretty. Have you ever heard of this? Mm-hmm. I have. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's. If uh, for our viewers out there, Salt of the Earth is a small 1950s movie that was that was funded by labor unions to kind of bring about to like the plight of the miner yeah. and the plight of like the family of the miner himself, mm-hmm. and it kind of shows this kind of like. This relationship at the time where it was really uneasy between w- the women and the men and the family mm-hmm. union, and also between the different races of like labor Completely. unions, as like they'd bring in different races as, uh, as uh, I can't think of the word, as uh, strike breakers. Yes, just yes. as like this 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 break in identity with your fellow worker kind of mm-hmm. brought a ease a little bit more of an ease to your like self conscious. And I think it's a great film if anybody's more interested and investigating what the plight of, like, labor unions were in the 50s. And mm-hmm. just the story of the production of Salt of the Earth kind of describes what we're about to enter in the 1950s with the Red Scare. Yes, oh, definitely, yeah. yeah. Um, the, the sort of second Red Scare, really, because you know, that sort of anti-communism had been very prevalent right throughout. But in that post-war period, this is where we see unions start to, to feel the pressure a little bit from, from the higher-ups. We see McCarthyism um, really come to the fore. Um, and as a result of that, I think in, I think it's 1951, uh, essentially this sort of anti-leftist fear is really, really starting to pick up. Unions are associated with, you know, socialism and leftism and, uh, and these sort of more radical movements that essentially McCarthy's trying to purge from U.S. society. So what the AFL do to try and make their, and the CIO as well, um, they, essentially have a purge of their own members and they remove what they deem to be leftist factions, anarchist factions, dangerous factions, essentially is what they characterize them as. Um, and that was kind of the death knell for them really. Um, to be honest, I think that, um, they, they tried to follow the McCarthy agenda as opposed to their own. Um, and it left them hollow. Uh, and essentially, since 1955, we saw a decline beginning, a rapid decline in unions. People reckon that that the sort of early 50s are when um, organized labor reached its peak, uh, when about a third of the population was unionized. Yeah, what point, I read is probably during the 50s was actually the peak yeah. membership for unions, and I think a third yeah, was. I think it was it was a third, and and it, that was I, I think 1955 was the moment at which it reached the highest percentage of unionized employees across the U.S. Uh, but since 55, that has been starting to decline uh, rapidly. And then we see with Reagan uh, later on, that decline gets a lot more rapid as well uh, with the, the PATCO strike, which was, yeah, was actually, something else. My next topic. So <laughs> oh, perfect. Let's perfect. go right into that. So yeah. it's actually very interesting when you read about the decline because it was mm-hmm. more in the private sector. So public mm-hmm. Public sector jobs still have very strong unions, yeah. and especially some industries like the film industry still with the SAG mm-hmm. and stuff still have very strong unions. But with the decline of private sector unions, how influential and how important were the PATCO strikes of 81? They were uh, they were a massive turning point. Um, so for anyone that doesn't know, the PATCO were um, sort of the union for uh, air traffic controllers uh, who were federal employees. Um, the issue there was that there was legislation on the books that um, meant that federal employees couldn't actually strike. So when they, I think there were... Uh, I think thir- they were mandating better pay and less hours because it's a very stressful job. Being naturally, naturally. Um, and I think um, 13,000 of them struck. Mm-hmm. Um, it 
basically it lasted, uh, I can't remember exactly, they, was, they, they struck in early August and it lasted at least a few weeks. Um, and Reagan ordered that they go back to work or they would lose their jobs. 1,300 of them went back uh, and within a few days, uh, the rest were all fired um, and banned from entering public sector work. Uh, for the rest of their lives. It was only when, actually, uh, Bill Clinton, later on, uh, he signed legislation that allowed them to return to the civil service. Um, but this was a mass... And the ironic thing is... It's I monumental. Said, it is absolutely monumental. And ironically, one of... The, you know, I said earlier on that there were only two occasions when sort of organized labor as a, as a, as a PAC didn't support the Democrat Party, and it was Reagan's election. Um, that, that, that was the first time, that was the second time, rather, that they, that they didn't support the Democrats, they supported Reagan. So this was a bit of a, uh, a, a, bit of a kick in the face for them. Um, and I, I think, as, I, as you said, you know, the PACO strike for, for private um, labor unions and the private sector labor unions, um, that was the beginning of the end, essentially. Um, and we've seen that sort of fear of private unions continue into the, the current administration. Um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of issues. We, we see a few labor movements at the moment that are struggling from the legacy of PACO, um, including the Graduate Student Workers Union, um, which quite a lot of, you know, I personally am involved in here at Northeastern. And there's there's been a huge move across the nation in the last few years uh, to organize graduate workers. Um, but we're seeing, you know, the NLRB <laughs> obviously yeah, are, are not being very cooperative on, in that regard and administrations aren't being very uh, cooperative. Uh, and I think what that represents is a, is a rollback of, of that New Deal legislation that we had seen, uh, that sort of Wagner Act idea that uh, respecting the right of workers to organize um, and, and PATCO, I think, was, was the turning point in the, in the 20th century that, that kind of got us to where we are today. So this is just a quick question to uh, wrap it all up. But then mm -hmm. how do students go around learning more about the history of labor unions, not just in the United States, but mm -hmm. in the world as a whole, and uh, just around campus and on their own time? Yeah. Uh, well, I can rec recommend a couple of really, really good books. Um, Elizabeth Cohen, who I mentioned earlier, she's at Harvard. Her uh, Making a New Deal. Uh, industrial worker, Workers in Chicago is absolutely fantastic. It's a really easy read. Uh, the other one that I would recommend is Roy Rosen, Rosenzweig, um, Eight Hours for What We Will. It's about that sort of leisure movement uh, for the eight hours for work, uh, eight hours for sleep, and eight hours for what we will. Um, so those two books, really accessible histories of, of, of quite specific cases, uh, but, but really, really interesting. On campus as well, here there are you know a few people who are really, really interested in labor movements. Uh, Professor Laura Freder in the history department, she is in, she's done a lot of the history of European labor, uh, particularly women uh, in unions in France. Uh, so she's a fantastic resource on campus. And we've also got uh, another, my fellow PhD student, James Robin Robinson as well. Um, he, his work is really, really interesting. He looks at the history of uh, organized labor and sport. Um, so how uh, baseball teams, you know, looking at both sides of it, essentially how uh, professional sports players unionized and how unions kind of achieve solidarity through organized sport. So it's a really, really interesting project. Sounds very interesting. So, and of course, myself, you know, I'm willing to talk to anybody. Yeah, who's what are interested. future plans for yourself? Yeah, well, I mean, at, at the as I said, I'm I'm at the. Uh, second year stage of my PhD, so I'm I'm writing my dissertation perspectives as we speak. And one thing I've been kind of interested in is, as I said, gender, race, and and you know, sort of organization and political organization like that. So what I'm looking at at the moment is um, how uh, 
uh, the idea of motherhood was politically mobilized in order to achieve sort of uh, political and social uh, gains um, and how that was very, very highly you know, tied in with race. Um, so I'm looking at the US and South Africa in particular for this project. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, and I think the unions are going to play a big, big part of that as well because they kind of fit into that uh that, that kind of narrative, pro-natalist narrative that we see there, um, particularly when it comes to, to race as well, there are, uh, are, are some really, really interesting dynamics going on through the, through the 20th century. So that's, that's my next step. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming to the show, Simon. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. You just heard Gatsby Smith talk to Simon Perdue about the history of American labor unions on Brainwaves here on WRBB 104.9 FM. Thank you very much for tuning into this episode. If you would like to hear more podcasts from the Northeastern News team on politics, Boston, and the students of Northeastern, go to our website at wrbbradio.com and go to the podcast section. Have a great day. This episode of Brainwaves was hosted by Jake Willis and Gatsby Smith. Our producers are Catherine Garcia, WRBB's news director, and Dan Lemon, WRBB's general manager. This episode of Brainwaves was mixed and edited by Benjamin Harrell. Special thanks to the WRBB leadership staff, Northeastern University, and Northeastern Student Activity Fee for funding this podcast. Our theme music is W by Mari Getty. Head to wrbbradio.org where you can find the latest episodes of all of our podcasts, listen to our internet live stream, and read up on the latest music reviews. And make sure to follow us on all social media at WRBB Radio. Thanks for tuning in.